This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on hypothermia. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Hypothermia is a serious condition. It can cause rhabdomyolysis, electrolyte disturbances and cardiac arrhythmias. It can also kill. In the UK, the annual number of hypothermia-related deaths is about 300. And in colder countries, the numbers are far higher. So it's important that we get the diagnosis and management of this condition right. To give us more details about this problem and what we can do about it, we have on the line Dr. Alexander Alexiou, Emergency Medicine Consultant at Barts Health NHS Trust. And importantly, Alex is one of the contributors to our BMJ best practice topic on this condition. So Alex, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking, what exactly is hypothermia? So accidental hypothermia can occur anywhere in the world, including tropical regions and in any season, um, and is made worse by cold, uh, damp climates. It's associated with a wide range of clinical presentations uh, from minor manifestations, um, such as confusion, to the more extreme critical care conditions such as a cardiac arrest. Okay, thank you. And are certain groups of patients at higher risk? And if so, could you tell us? Yes, indeed. Um, Firstly, I think the extremes of ages are both um, considered high risk. So very young babies and children uh, because they lose body heat much quicker than adults. Um, And the elderly group as well are a higher risk group. Um, and I think this is something we're finding with a growing elderly population, um, something that's becoming more and more of a problem, um, especially with elderly fallers who spend prolonged time on the floor, uh, sepsis. Um, these patients present sometimes after prolonged periods of time in the community, sometimes in their own homes, but can be profoundly hypothermic. Okay, thank you. And and how do you actually make the diagnosis? So... The diagnosis of hypothermia is usually based on a person's physical signs and and the conditions in which the patient is found um, or became unwell. Um, Obviously, by measuring a temperature, um, we'll get an accurate reading in most instances. But I think it's very important to be aware that lots of the clinical thermometers we use um, only measure accurately until about 34 and a half degrees. So we need to be cognizant of this. And if we are suspecting that someone is colder, Um, than this, we need to start thinking about more invasive, um, low reading thermometers to get an accurate body temperature, such as rectal thermometers, or um, if a patient's intubated, then um, esophageal readings as well. Okay, thank you. And so as well as core temperature measurement, um, what, what other tests might be necessary? Um, so I think this group of patients, we will be working up um, for, a rate, for with a variety of different tests. So we'll be performing an ECG. Um, and as we know, hypothermia can have profound effects on the cardiovascular system. Um, patients can become bradycardic. Um, and there are other changes in blood pressure um, due to vasoconstriction as well. Um, we'll also be performing routine observations um, and probably a venous blood gas fairly on in their presentation 
Um, and again, this can show some changes which might point to a, a compromised secondary to hypothermia. Um, we'll also be doing um, routine emergency blood tests, uh, and these will comprise of blood counts, um, clotting. Um, patients can um, have increased bleeding time in the more profound uh, end of the spectrum. Um, they'll have decreased platelets and white cell count sometimes. Um, we will also see um, a worsening of their renal function. And this could be associated to the presentation which has led them to be hypothermic, but will be compounded by hypothermia as well. Okay, thank you. And are there any recent advances in the diagnosis of hypothermia? So I think what's changed is a, uh, an awareness of it as a problem. And it's, this largely revolves around, again, our elderly population um, and silver trauma and patients who are spending longer on the floor after a fall, um, who are presenting more unwell to hospital. Um, and having that awareness is what's making us pick this up at an earlier stage and making us address it uh, in a more effective way. We have obviously had numerous different ways of measuring temperatures and clinical um, readings have improved. Um, however, as I mentioned earlier, most clinical thermometers are very unreliable when you move out of the normal range of temperature. So we have to rely on more invasive measures. And I think actually since COVID, uh, where we've had an advent and increase of temperature checks um, in both medical and non-medical settings, um, it's been highlighted actually, you know, the unreliability um, and the inconsistency of how we measure body temperature accurately. And there's actually been a working, an international working group set up to um, clearly define how we get accurate readings. Um, so obviously this will help improve the ongoing care for hypothermia. Yeah, but in the meantime, I guess that the standard of care uh, um, currently, if you have somebody in the emergency department, is the core rectal uh, temperature measurement. Is that correct? Yes, that would be the easiest way of getting a, a reliable reading. Um, obviously, esophageal, you'd need to have a patient with a managed airway, um, and you would only be doing this um, in certain patient groups. Um, so rectal would be the most reliable way of getting a, an accurate temperature. And it's, it's getting the basics right. Um, I think that's the most important thing with hypothermia. So an early rectal uh, reading uh, and then serial readings as we are treating the patient and rewarming them to make sure things are trending in the right direction. Okay, thank you. Um, what are the pitfalls in diagnosis of hypothermia? Um, I'd say probably not considering it as a, a possibility and not measuring a temperature early is the first thing that springs to mind, actually. Um, if you don't think about it, you won't pick it up and you won't address it. And then you'll be um, a couple of hours behind in your, in your management of it. And it can compound all the other body systems we mentioned earlier, renal function, cardiovascular stability, etc. Um, and I think it also relates to those high-risk groups. You know, having those groups, having hypothermia high on your list early on as a problem um, is critically important. The elderly patients, trauma patients who come into hospital who are immobilized. Hospitals are generally quite cold places if you're lying still for prolonged periods of time. So actually, we iatrogenically make patients cold. Um, paralyzed patients, so anyone who's been paralyzed um, in an emergency department or pre-hospitally will not be moving. Um, and again, if we don't look after them and make sure they stay warm, they will become hypothermic. Um, and I think one of the other key pitfalls in diagnosis is serial monitoring. Looking after a patient who's got 
moderate to severe hypothermia it's quite intense on on our nurses um, and uh, needs quite close monitoring and I think this is critically important to make sure that when we are treating patients and warming them um, that we're doing the right things effectively. Okay thank you. Let's move on to management. What is the mainstay of management of hypothermia and, and I know the different grades of hypothermia but let's so let's start off with kind of mild hypothermia and first of all when I said to ask what is mild hypothermia? So mild hypothermia is anything between 35 uh, down to 32 degrees uh, in core temperature um, and I'd have to say for this group generally and this is the one we encounter most often than not um, the management would generally be passive warming um, so this is keeping the patient dry so if they're wet drying them up with some towels and replacing any wet clothing um, making sure the environment's warm, the ambulance they're being brought into hospitals uh, got a heater on, the department's warm, um, we've put the appropriate blankets on them, um, we haven't left any open doors, simple things um, that um, will keep the, the patient's immediate environment at a good temperature. Um, insulation with blankets, um, we've got numerous different types of blankets available across healthcare now which are, uh, are marketed and designed to keep patients warm, um, the use of those irrespective of which one um, individual departments have, they're all effective. Um, and allowing the patient to mobilise if they are conscious, um, I think is, is also quite important. The caveat with that is to be aware that there can be some hypertension on cessation of any exercise or mobilisation. So if, if a hypotension is a problem, um, just be cognizant of that as well. Okay, great, great, thank you. Should we warm people up quickly or slowly? Generally, the, the, um, the consensus is that people should be warmed up slowly. Um, rapid rewarming has its own um, side effects and can cause cardiovascular issues um, and instability and arrhythmias. Um, so generally, warming uh, slowly is a, is a more effective um, uh, method. And passive warming, we aim to warm people up about approximately one and a half degrees per hour. Um, I think that's the general consensus of how, how uh, fast we want it to, to be corrected. Okay, thank you. And depending, and, and sometimes people talk about um, uh, warmed intervene, intravenous fluids. Is that necessary mm -hmm. in some patients, some groups of patients? Or? Yes, yeah. So that I think with with uh, um, things like warm intravenous fluids, we're walking, we're talking about central um, active warming, um, and this is again reserved for the the more moderate to severe um, groups, um, and it's definitely yes indicated. Um, it's uh, so we generally warm fluids to around forty two degrees. Um, advice is to use a a fluid warmer, so the similar thing we would use when we give a blood transfusion um, in trauma patients um, to make sure that the fluid goes in. Uh, at, at correct temperature. What it really does though, the warm fluids, is it prevents further cooling rather than promotes warming. And generally, if a patient doesn't need fluid, um, we shouldn't be giving, uh, we shouldn't be reheating a patient um, via those means. But if a patient's also dehydrated and in need of fluids, make sure we're giving them that temperature to make they, so they don't further cool as such. Okay, thank you. And another therapeutic measure that um, I've read about is so-called active external rewarming. Can you tell us what that is? So um, I think what you 
you're alluding to is use of heat pads, um, radiant methods, um, and forced air warming blankets. Um, so there are lots of uh, different brands, actually, that you might find in different departments. Um, for example, the Bear Hugger is one that's commonly used. Um, and what they do is they blow hot air onto the patient um, and will rewarm from the outside onto the skin. Um, and it's obviously, this is much more effective when the skin has been dried and any moisture has been removed. Um, uh, so, yeah, those, those methods are also very effective and probably the mainstay of what we do in most emergency departments as well. Okay, great. Thank you. And, uh, and last question on management. Um, oxygen and um, uh, when might oxygen be necessary and what types of oxygen should we give? Yeah, so I think um, if a patient has a coexistent oxygen requirement, then oxygen should obviously be given, um, but we should aim to be to give it um, warmed and humidified. Um, and generally, this is between 40 to 46 degrees. Um, and if a patient's intubated, this will be give, administered by the ET tube. And what this does is this also helps to raise the body temperature between one to one and a half degrees per hour. Um, if a patient presents solely because of exposure and hypothermia and their oxygen levels are within normal range or what would be expected by the British Thoracic Society oxygen guidelines, then there wouldn't be any indication to, to administer any, um, unless it was de um, deemed uh, an extra measure which could raise their body temperature. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, let's move on to pitfalls in management now. Uh, what are the main pitfalls in management, would you say? So pa patients who are hypothermic routinely need fairly intense nursing um, and clinical needs. Um, and that implies that they need constant and close monitoring um, to assess for response to therapy. Um, so we need to make sure that whatever um, method of warming we are doing, we are assessing the response on a frequent basis um, and checking the body temperature. And usually, as mentioned earlier, a rectal thermometer would be the ideal way of, of doing this. Um, so this needs to be connected to the monitoring um, and someone constantly reviewing this to make sure we're not rewarming too quickly, but that there is response to the therapy applied. Um, I think the other man, um, pitfalls are, um, sometimes when I've seen this, is that we rewarm a patient, uh, the temperature has returned to normal range, and then things that would just keep a patient warm uh, uh, are stopped and actually patients cool down quite quickly again because they are predisposed to hypothermia. So once they are they are essentially rewarmed and we've got their core temperature back to where we want it, we need to ensure that we keep it that way as well. Um, I think the, the main thing that I get asked by um, colleagues or junior doctors is, the effects that hypothermia has on the different systems in the body. Um, um, so, for example, we mentioned earlier, we talking about um, investigations where you do what the cardiovascular effects are um, and what changes um, hypothermia has on an ECG. Um, I think that's what that's something that's quite common, um, ECG changes in hypothermia and, and uh, how common are they. Um, I have to say, generally, patients who are mildly hypothermic, you don't tend to see too much. It's when you start to enter into the realms of moderate um, hypothermia, you start to see that widening of the QRS, um, increased PR interval, um, and sometimes obviously J waves, which is what everyone knows about. Okay, thank you. Um, and 
last question. Um, many years ago, I was in an exam and I was asked this question. So I'm going to ask, put it to you now, Alex. And I was given a scenario, say a patient is on the side of a mountain and uh, they're cold. And there's a group of people there. You're the only doctor. And somebody comes up with a very clever idea and says, oh, I've got a drop of whiskey. Why don't we give this person some whiskey to warm them up? What should you say? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I guess the whiskey would probably be very cold if you're in the top of the mountain. So actually, first of all, any fluid ingested that's cold is not a good idea. Um, it's also probably alcohol is dehydrating, so it will um, not hydrate them anyway. And actually, it wouldn't give them any any benefit. Probably all they'll feel is that warm tickle at the back of their throat. Uh, so from a symptom perspective it might give them a couple of seconds of uh of comfort but um i wouldn't advise them having some whiskey on the top of a mountain yeah yeah and and as well and i, I think what the the person who asked me was getting at is that alcohol is a vasodilator as well so actually you kind of kind of going to lose some further core temperature potentially so yeah, yeah. exactly yeah so in large amounts it will yeah vasodilate you as well yeah also. yeah excellent fantastic Thank you very much, Alex, and, and thanks to everybody for listening. We hope this has been helpful, and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and have a look at the content on this and other diseases. Thank you once again. <laughs>